Welcome to episode two of Sobremesa, the podcast for those who love after-dinner conversations. In episode two, you are going to hear a conversation with Dr. Miguel Ruiz Diaz. Miguel happens to be the person with whom I have shared the most Sobremesas over the course of my life because I've been married to him for 31 years. We have three children together and one dog. And Miguel makes the best, most delicious paellas this side of the Atlantic. We are in Minnesota. So over three decades, we have ended up talking a lot after our late dinners and our casual tapas. And in this conversation, uh, we will talk about health, health equity, COVID, other important topics, uh, medical education, equity in medical education, and many of the things we have discussed over the many years. We met when Miguel was in residency and I was in college, so we have definitely have had a lot of conversations about our professional life and our impact of our jobs in um, the lives of others and in our own lives. So we'll talk about healthcare and minorities as it pertains to the context that we are living both in the United States, but I think it's a conversation that has global significance as well. You might be wondering why in a podcast about dinner conversations, one of the first episodes is about medicine, healthcare, and inequalities. Well, one of the reasons is because our personal sobremesas, like I was saying before, we have had a huge range of conversations, as diverse as the guests that we have had around our table, and also because we always talk about the things that are current to our work, to our lives, and what is happening around us. So get used to this because in our Sobremesa podcast, we will be talking a lot about many, many different topics. Politics, medicine, justice, faith, spirituality, art, sports, shoes, you name it, and many other things. And this one happens to be with Dr. Miguel Ruiz. And I am just so looking forward for you to uh, pull up a chair and join us at the table. Miguel, it is so fun to sit um, again around the table and this time to be recording our episode two of Sobremesa. Um, so would you please share with um, people who are listening what you do and a little bit about your story and what brought you into the field of medicine? I am Miguel Ruiz and I am a internal medicine doctor who did medical school in Spain, in Madrid, in the 80s. And then I, uh, I think it was my th third year uh, of medical school, I was uh, fortunate enough to meet a wonderful and beautiful young woman by the name of Christina. And the rest is history. Uh, <laughs> here we are now, over 30 years uh, later, um, sharing with you some of our journey. And you're asking me and want me to share a little bit about what, what I do and what's been important to me. And I think what I want to say is that I went to medi into medicine uh, because I had a curiosity about uh, the workings of the human body. I was very uh, interested when I saw my older brother, who is a physician too, studying anatomy and physiology. And I just uh, developed a, a, a deep curiosity for knowing more about the human body and was very interested and attracted to understanding why and how the body works and, and then how diseases do affect the body. 
But then, obviously, uh, the other component that was very attractive to me was the opportunity to help people with their physical health, but also with their emotional health and their spiritual uh, health. So I was early in my career very interested in the concept of the whole person, medicine of the person. I read authors like Paul Tournier and others who really were uh, pioneers in the field of holistic medicine, the medicine of the person. Thank you for sharing about what motivated you to go into medical school. I've obviously heard it many times, but it's always inspiring to see that combination of vocation, passion, curiosity, and interest. And I know that your story of um, going into medical school and then into residency in a foreign country is not one without challenges. And I know that some of the challenges that you experienced had, had to do with, with the fact that you were a foreign medical graduate and also that you were seeking um, training in, outside of your country. I'd love to talk a little bit now about um, some of the conversations that we've had around our table that have to do with um, inequalities and injustices in the healthcare system. And, um, you know, that we've talked a lot about health healthcare organizations and how they can address racial inequity, that the reality is that there are less physicians who are BIPOC, less physicians who are people of color, and that is also the case in medical school. There are less students going into medicine. And I'm, I just want to make a segue because we're talking about your how you got into medicine, and I know that you yourself experienced some challenges um, when you were trying to apply for residency um, as a foreign medical graduate in the United States. So I would love to hear a little bit more um, from you about this particular area of inequality in medical education, in training. The number of male medical students which, who were uh, black back in the late 70s was around 3.1%. Mm -hmm. uh, and that number in this past year uh, analysis was down to 2.9%. Wow, Even from though, 1970. From, I, I believe it's from the late 1970s, so it's oh. in the last 50 years or 40 mm. or 50 years. I don't know exactly remember the, 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 the dates, but it was several decades mm. ago. There actually has been an attrition, has been a, a decrease mm. in the number of black men who are medical students in the mm. U.S., in spite yeah. of the growth of the, of the African-American black population. Mm. Um, there's been an increase in the number of women, physician women, mm -hmm. which, which are now a little bit over half of all medical students mm -hmm. in the U.S., which is great because women were very underrepresented in medical schools, yeah. um, you know, last century. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been a nice growth, for example, in Asian uh, medical students, mm -hmm. female particularly, uh, which is great. Mm -hmm. But when we look at Latino, Hispanic, Latino medical students are still very underrepresented mm -hmm. in medical school. So both uh, black students and Latinx students are underrepresented in medical school. That is correct. Yeah. So what are you, given your experience as a foreign medical graduate, which is um, unique, of course, to your story and perhaps is not representative of the majority of um, U.S.-born Latinx and, mm -hmm. of course, African-American, but what... What do you think can be done to increase the number of medical students of color? Well, I think 
the, the obvious uh, first and, and more direct way to do that would be to, to change the admission process to medical school. Mm. Say more about that, because uh, that sounds pretty radical and... <laughs> uh, yeah, well, yeah. you know, I think this has been changing, or at least there's been some efforts, but I think when, when everybody is considering the, the same uh, parameter of, of the same criteria, and, where, and when the background of the individual and the disadvantage uh, position in which some students and college students have been, um, asking everybody the same, um, the same parameters is certainly unfair, mm -hmm. okay? Because not all medical students have relatives who are physicians who can guide them into the process of application or studying in college, the pre-med, mm -hmm. or application to medical school, or connections for externships and voluntary work, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so forth. And uh, I, I think that many individuals of color, students of color, unfortunately are starting from a position of, dis of disadvantage mm. compared with white students. Yeah. Uh, socioeconomic background, again, network, the lack of networking mm -hmm. and, and, and so forth. And, and of course, without having mentioned racist, uh, um, admission policies, admission policies yeah. uh, and criteria and the, the economics uh, of, of what it costs to apply to medical school or to go to certain colleges, mm -hmm. uh, attend certain colleges that are more likely to, to produce students that mm -hmm. are going to be higher, higher, having higher chances of entering medical school. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, certainly uh, for admission committees to be very cognizant of of these disparities, mm -hmm. to be able to be more understanding of the of the background of the applicants, to encourage applicants um, uh, to to really uh, apply mm -hmm. uh, and and to stay at it, and then to also realize that the composition of the medical student body needs to reflect the composition of the society. Mm -hmm. So. I think having race and language as criteria and positive point, points for applicants from those groups uh, because of the need of physicians uh, in those groups uh, should, be, should be entertained. And yeah. hopefully that will be a way to compensate for the, those advantages that students of color uh, mm -hmm. face. Definitely. Yeah, I, I agree. And as I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about um, your own story, um, about which I, I would love for you to share a little bit more. Um, thinking about the people in your life who have mentored you through the process without whom you might not be where you are. Um, writing your personal statement, having mm -hmm. our dear friends Anita Anuni who helped you mm -hmm. edit it and, and write it in a way that would be helpful. So thinking about ways in which... Um, students of color, pre-medical students can, can develop those connections and mentorship mm. that will help them. Um, yeah. yeah Absolutely. Is, I yeah. think that is certainly a, a very key component in which we as a society, we as already established mm -hmm. professionals, can and have a responsibility to help those coming in the pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that that is, you mentioned key, key elements of that, the, the, the idea of having programs 
that are directed specifically to students of color uh, mm -hmm. when they're in high school uh, to help them succeed, to help them um, be aware of what's available for financial grants, for mentorship opportunities, for volunteering in certain uh, environments, mm -hmm. for increasing the opportunities for exposure to certain professions like yeah. healthcare. Mm -hmm. Those are um, some of the interventions that some of the non-profit organizations working with these yeah. communities have realized and that are very important. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that one non-profit here in the Twin Cities uh, has done that and we have been part of a mentorship program for mm -hmm. Latino uh, high schoolers. Can you share um, you to, the, the name of that non-profit? Yeah, the non-profit is CLUS, Comunidades mm -hmm. Latinas Unidas en Servicio, mm -hmm. or Latin Communities United in Service. Yes. And uh, through their JA program, uh, students from high school have been able to connect personally with mentors from different, different disciplines and mm -hmm. uh, professions um, on, and meet on a regular basis for the purpose of really getting the advice and, and, and for those uh, crucial conversations that can, that can yeah. be so motivating and so important that can help it can make the difference it does, yeah. uh, on a student going on a path in which they see there is a possibility and mm -hmm. a future and, and the opportunity to, mm -hmm. yeah. to grow in an area and to Definitely. have this, this chance. Yeah, but and, and you were involved in those programs and it's a, a great way for you to give back. Mm -hmm. um, we have been the recipient of so much love and guidance throughout the years and you have been in your professional life. So mm -hmm. to, for you to do that now to give back is, um, is wonderful. But, you know, they do have some seminars on how to apply to college and, and all, all kinds of very important mm -hmm. uh, educational opportunities for students of color. Yeah. It, it feels like uh, an important theme that we're talking about as, as you're looking back at your story um, from medical school to residency, uh, moving countries and continents, is that all the things that you have learned. And what else do you wish you had known before you started your career as a doctor? And knowing what you know now, when you look back, what are some of the things um, you wish you had known in your earlier years as a physician? Well, I think an important learning through the years have been uh, the importance of being mindful to realize that we all have something to give and that in spite of feeling that you are at a disadvantage or that the not, English is not my first language, that was always something that was in my mind. As soon as I open my mouth, then I know people are going to be questioning, I wonder where this, this doctor is from or if where he studied or, you know, if he really understands our system and, and all those questions. So I think that can generate insecurities. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we are grounded as, as, an indiv as individuals, when we are settled in our bodies and we are focused in our mind mm -hmm. and we are um, clear about what we want to do and understanding that everybody has 
sense of feelings of insecurity. Everybody is afraid of uh, making a mistake. Everybody uh, makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think there can be a, a peace that comes and 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 a, and a an assurance that number one we are not in this boat alone. Number two, that uh, we are not superheroes and we are not expected to do everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Number three, that we need to look after ourselves. Mm. That self-care is something that it needs to be present from the get-go. And when you are young and you have energy and you are able to work nights and, and with little sleep, get by and, mm-hmm. and do many things, I think you don't realize that the body uh, will pass the... the 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 check in the sense of you're going to you're going to get tired and mm-hmm. you're going to be down so I think I wish I'd known that uh, uh, self care is is so crucial mm-hmm. for the uh, for the good practice of of medicine and any profession really that uh, mindfulness and knowledge of self are are essential tools for being somebody who's able to hear others mm-hmm. and, and to help others and that uh, and that it should be fun mm. that this requires a lot of work um, but it has to be fun mm. and there is a lot of fun in medicine mm-hmm. uh, plenty um, that those dreams that may have been inspired on TV shows of seeing doctors saving lives uh, are true that it is an amazing privilege to be able to be a part of somebody else's life at the time of crisis mm-hmm. and sickness and death sometimes, mm-hmm. and that that is that there are, that that is an an amazing privilege that we can not only uh, be a part of with our with 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 excellence medical excellence but also actually enjoy yes. and have fun in the process. Oh, I love that. And I have seen you enjoy your profession and it's something that I have really uh, enjoyed to to really observe how you have grown and, mm-hmm. and the joy that it brings to you and the joy that it brings to your patients and the joy that it brings to us as a family to see that you're doing something for which you are called mm-hmm. and that you have a vocation because it's, you really truly walk alongside somebody's path mm-hmm. in very difficult moments. So what has given you strength as you have walked your own difficulties, personal difficulties, Mm -hmm. and you have walked alongside your patients in very difficult moments? Because Mm -hmm. as a doctor, many times, uh, particularly your specialty palliative and hospice care, uh, there are very tender uh, moments for many families. Mm -hmm. What has been a source of strength for you? Well, I have to say that for me, the the main source of stress or, or a very fundamental and principal one has been my connection with God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was for me present from the very, from the, from the let go, from the get go, from the days of applying to medical school in after the, the transition from high school into medicine in, mm-hmm. in Madrid, Spain, uh, seeking God and, and asking him to, to really help me in the process, guide me, reveal, reveal to me, show a path, give me the strength, uh, have been, a, I would say, a foundational aspect in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think that was followed very closely by you, 
by mm. my life, uh, my life companion and friend, Christina, mm. who has been an amazing source of strength, inspiration, encouragement, mm. guidance, sometimes exhortation, and, <laughs> and uh, more times than and you like. <laughs> rebutal, uh, yeah. but uh, more than anything, unconditional love. Mm. Uh, that is a reflection of God's love for us, which, mm. which is unconditional. So those have been my foundations, my mm. pillars. Um, there have been obviously people in, in my professional life that have been very instrumental too, to, for encouragement, for advice, for guidance, for friendship. Uh, you mentioned our friend Uni from the early days. And he was, as a foreign medical graduate himself, was very instrumental in helping me put together my CV, personal statement, and get to know the, the system here, mm -hmm. back to the importance of connections. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then many others that have been in my path, and some of whom are still in my path, with whom I can share. Yes. At the mm -hmm. professional level, as friends, I can think two or three close friends I have right now that it's a joy to share the journey with them, physicians, mm -hmm. with whom I know I can share even the intimate aspects of the profession, uh, because they understand what it, what it is like and what it feels uh, to, to be a practicing physician. Mm. So I think that is what I can yeah, thank you. think of. Yeah. Again, um, we, this last thoughts that you brought, it, brought in go back to the idea of connections, faith, and mentorship. And I, I have a, two more questions for you. Um, what to give some advice or words of wisdom to, particularly I'm thinking of um, young people who want to go into medicine, who are from what we call the global majority, but minority groups here in the United States. What, what advice would you, would you give or mm. what words of wisdom would you share based on the many things we've discussed? Yeah. I will, first and foremost, remind them that they have a lot to give, a lot to offer, that they, by just being members of, of that global majority that you are referring to, they, they have already a life experience that others don't, mm. and that the, many of the difficulties that they may have experienced because of the color of their skin or because of the tone of their accent, the very elements by which they may be or society may have made them more vulnerable or disadvantaged. And that resilience, that, uh, that desire to, uh, that, that need to overcome that uh, systemic disadvantage, uh, it can be a strength that can really be what makes the difference for them to overcome. If you think about it, in this country, many physicians are foreign medical graduates who have had to overcome other difficulties uh, compared with those national uh, graduates. And in, in some ways, they have proven that they have the resilience that it takes mm -hmm. uh, to, to be in this profession. Mm -hmm. So what I will give them as a recommendation is, number one, don't underestimate who you are mm -hmm. um, and what you have and what you can contribute mm -hmm. and, and give. Number one. Number two... Yeah, before you go to number two, as you're finishing number one, it sounds like what you are pointing to is really harnessing the power of your personal story. 
You got it. So you're able to <laughs> say it way better than I. No, 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 better. So why don't you say more about that? No, I just, as I'm listening to you, what I'm hearing is that um, sometimes the way um, the, the system is created to, to have a, a process of elimination is eliminating some stories that don't fit the standard. Mm. And what I think I hear you say, if I'm understanding you correctly, is not of your personal story. Because Absolutely. in it, there's so much that you can give, and there's so much energy, and, mm. there, and it's so needed. Correct. Absolutely right. Well said. And that I think that is part of the role of a mentor, is the person who can uh, be there to point out mm -hmm. those stories that sometimes the individual may not even be aware of, that those have required mm -hmm. an amazing amount of stamina, of perseverance, resilience, strength, uh, to to basically to swim against the flow of, mm -hmm. of a society that is racist intrinsically. Uh, so I think pointing that out, calling that out, mm -hmm. using that as, as, as an element of, of a strength uh, is very important. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you. So number two? Yeah, number two actually <laughs> was going to be, as already mentioned, because it was going to be try to get connected. Mm. Find those individuals um, that are there within the field, maybe yes. a physician in practice already of color who mm -hmm. has gone through this story themselves, even at times when it was even more difficult, mm -hmm. and, and try to, to listen to those stories, mm -hmm. uh, try to ask for advice and, and try to have conversations with these individuals um, so that uh, that wisdom can be, can be, wisdom from the experience of life, okay, yes. uh, can be shared and can be of benefit. Mm -hmm. And then I think Number three, um, uh, just being intentional, being um, persistent, mm -hmm. uh, don't give up. Yeah. Basically, never, never give up. It's a long journey, isn't <laughs> it's, it? It's a long journey. Uh, it's, it's not a revolution, it's an evolution. Mm -hmm. uh, it, takes, it takes time, it takes years. It may take a little longer. Mm -hmm. that it may take for other people who may not have to face some of these difficulties, yes. but certainly for those who stay at it, uh, they, they can mm -hmm. oftentimes see positive outcomes. Yeah. And then keep on getting in, engaged in, in, the, in the civic discourse of society. Mm -hmm. um, get engaged with those groups like our daughter is doing right now at her university uh, with the Latino uh, club. Mm -hmm. to, to be able to get together with others who, not just mentors who are ahead of you, but with other peers that are going through similar, uh, who are part of the journey at, mm -hmm. the, same, at the same time. And uh, so that you can have somebody mm -hmm. with whom you can go shoulder to shoulder. Yeah, and get into good trouble, right? Yes. <laughs> So we've been talking quite a bit, and I think it's a very necessary conversation um, about the disparities and inequalities in access to medical school for BIPOC students. And this is really linked to the importance of understanding what it means to offer equitable healthcare and equitable healthcare access due to the disparities and injustices in the healthcare system. Can you talk a little bit about what it means for you as a physician 
who is affected and how, and perhaps also to contextualize it to the to the moment we're living right now with, with the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic? Sure. I think this is a very, uh, not only a hot topic, but also a very important topic, obviously. Certainly. Because we've come to realize, and we've known for a long time, actually, that uh, there are significant healthcare disparities in medicine. Mm -hmm. We know that there have been different uh, treatments for different groups, there are studies uh, on how patients of color receive less painkillers when they come to the emergency department with a long bone fracture, for example, both adult and children. Children with appendicitis uh, who are children of color tend to get worse pain control. So that is an alarming find, finding, and actually it has become more and more clear that this um, influence of uh, what we call a structural or systemic racism also has infiltrated through the decades and historically medicine. We can go to the very beginnings of uh, Western medicine as we understand it and see the, uh, the, the disparities, the disadvantage from uh, patients uh, from, from communities of color in having not only less access to, to, to excellent medical care, but also to receiving worse quality care and I mean, we could spend a long time talking about that. That's just terrible. It yeah. is terrible. Yeah. I mean, we are all familiar with uh, events like the Tuskegee uh, experiment where African-Americans were, a group of them were not treated with a already a known um, a effective treatment for syphilis, uh, penicillin, uh, just, to, just, just to see how the disease uh, natural course was, uh, yeah. letting these men and women suffer. Uh, in a very unfair and cruel way. So obviously that has generated concern and also has generated a lack of trust in many communities of color. Mm -hmm. But I think back to your question about equity in medicine, I'd like to say that uh, we have, uh, you know, traditionally we've been talking about um, e equality, that everybody has the same, the right to get the same amount of care, the same amount of resources. And I think uh, that is the wrong emphasis. Mm. I think it's important we realize that the key is to talk about equity. Mm. And the yeah, that's an important distinction. Yeah. yeah. So equality is everybody gets the same amount of resources, the same amount of care. Equity actually looks at the outcomes. Mm. Equity or equitable health means that everybody has an opportunity to, to enjoy uh, well-being and health. And, and will that mean that the resources will be allocated differently so that in order to have equitable outcomes, some individuals may need more resources or different resources than others. Absolutely, uh, that is correct. So mm -hmm. I usually saw a graphic of uh, uh, several folks riding bicycles and you have a, a child, an older person, somebody who's handicapped, uh, 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 somebody who's middle-aged, and if we gave them all the same type of bicycle, some of them will not be able to ride. Mm. So the key is, the kid needs a smaller bicycle. The person who has a handicap needs, needs, may need a three-wheeled bicycle, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so forth. That's so a helpful visual. So yeah. really, it's all about uh, uh, looking at the outcomes so that everybody can enjoy good health. And we do this, we've done this the, traditionally. You have, you know, just look at the hospital, hospital work, and uh, there's a huge difference in the amount of resources that go into treating somebody who is 25 and otherwise healthy for uh, pneumonia. 
uh, that person maybe in the hospital a couple of days, go home uh, quickly. Somebody who is 85 coming with pneumonia usually ends up staying longer days in the hospital. They need physical therapy. They may need to go to a transitional care unit for rehabilitation before they are able to go back home. Mm -hmm. So obviously we are giving different resources to yes. the person who needs those additional uh, elements of care to be able to achieve the same outcome, and that's where the equity piece comes, which is hopefully health. Yes. Um, and this applies for patients who may not have English as their, as their first language, or mm -hmm. who prefer to receive care in a different language other than English. Uh, we need to provide a professionally trained uh, healthcare interpreter Absolutely. and uh, to be able to provide that care and to achieve those outcomes that we are hoping for for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, and I think there is even then yet one more step in this uh, progression from equality to equity, and that would be the step of justice. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, equity is about trying to do um, the interventions and, and to strategize around the importance of providing additional care to overcome the obstacles. But how about we remove the obstacles? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And that would be justice. If patients of color who live in urban areas where they have less resources were able to live in uh, areas where they could do more exercise in a safe way, yeah. where they had access to a better, healthier food, they wouldn't end up getting sick mm -hmm. in the ways that they may be getting sick these days when they don't, they're lacking those, yes. those advantages that others have. Mm -hmm. So we were, to, we were to live in a society in which those obstacles and, and those, those populations that have been made vulnerable mm -hmm. by the systemic uh, injustices uh, through generations were removed, yes. then I think we'll have not only equity, but also justice. Yes, definitely. I think and all those distinctions are really important because the way we speak about a situation really... Um, shapes how we think about it and really being mindful about the language we use is going to um, um, impact the things we see and you're really pointing to a um, interconnectedness, a web of connections between mm -hmm. physical health, urban development, parks, um, you know, health, healthy foods, policies. policies, it's all connected. Absolutely. I think COVID has been uh, an unfortunate uh, reminder of, their, of these uh, stark realities of, of, of disadvantage and inequities and disparities. Initially, when the epidemic, the pandemic started, they, they, we thought this was going to be the great equalizer where everybody was going to be affected. Uh, no matter what, because at the end of the day, this is a virus that will impact any human being. Yeah. And, and we quickly realized that that wasn't the case, that the mortality for black patients is double than, those, uh, for, than for white patients. And this is because um, these social determinants of health or these social forces of health do play a huge role in, in outcomes, even for a pandemic, even for a virus that can affect technically uh, every human being uh, mm. in an equal way. We know that when we started looking into what are the elements that have created this disparity in why are communities of color being affected more heavily by this virus? Why do they get hospitalized more often? Why do they have worse outcomes even in the hospital? We start looking at, at those factors. Well, they get infected more often because 
for example, in the case of Afri the African-American community, uh, they are living in multi-unit uh, buildings more frequently than white. They have less home ownership, so mm -hmm. there's more aggregation, uh, more proximity. Uh, they are using public transportation more often than, more yes. often than white uh, individuals. Look at the Latino community. Why are they being infected uh, more uh, by COVID? Well, because they are doing the type of jobs mm -hmm. that uh, put them at higher risk. Mm. One example is the Latino working in or Latinx uh, individuals working in meat meatpacking uh, factories or companies, where not only they are working very close to each other, they have to pass the the different pieces of meat, but where they have machinery that is very loud, so they need to shout and mm. how they communicate to get their work done. And this proc physical proximity with shouting, speaking loud, screaming, uh, which is required, leads to, to this higher uh, rate of infection. Mm. Living in apartments or in houses where multiple generations live together, children that go to school, um, so extended family cohabitation, co-workers sharing rooms uh, due to their uh, lower financial resources. All these are factors that we know have made a huge difference uh, on how some of these communities have been affected much more heavily and negatively by the virus. Really, yes, your examples are really uh, important to, to continue to be aware. We still are um, almost a year and a half or more into the COVID pandemic, and we are still seeing the, the spread of the virus, and we are seeing um, the um, inequities that are, that are still, the injustices that are still happening. It is true that um, the examples you give me make me think of, of many people used to say that we are all in the same boat in this pandemic. And the reality is that we are not in the same boat. We are all in the same storm, but we are differently equipped. Some people are riding the storm in a beautiful yacht and other people are without a boat. So it's really important to be aware of that. And and because it's still very relevant and important, this um, makes me think, um, I've, I know that you recently participated um, in a TPT PBS documentary directed by Chris Newberry. The documentary is titled Trusted Messenger. Can you share a little bit about what it is about and the main message of this documentary? Yes, uh, thank you. I think this is an important uh, piece in, uh, in community education. As you know, uh, our hope for overcoming this pandemic lays on having the, the majority or the entirety of the population vaccinated uh, for COVID-19, which has been a real struggle mm -hmm. uh, in, for multiple reasons, initially because of the, of the difficulties and the logistics and the, around making the vaccine available to everybody. And again, another point of disparity here, where for some uh, communities in which individuals may not have their own car or public transportation, couldn't go to the, or get to the vaccination sites. But um, this has really been uh, something that now has been fortunately um, uh, overcome in, in most places, and yet we know that there's significant vaccination hesitancy. Individuals uh, that, because misinformation, because distrust or mistrust, they are not being immunized. So this documentary, which is 57 minutes, and is done by an expert filmmaker, as you mentioned, Chris Newberry, 
really uh, is a testimonial and a, and, and a series of interviews and uh, even a couple of patients' examples uh, that point towards the fact that uh, getting vaccinated, getting the vaccine is very crucial. And they, uh, in, in this documentary, you can see the life stories of some individuals, some communities in the in Latinx community, African-American, barbershop mm. um, interventions uh, levels, and other very neat stories of individuals who have, some of them have a change of mind about going from being reluctant mm. to receiving the vaccine and to being immunized to, to actually realizing that this is, uh, something that is very important for everybody. So mm -hmm. this is going to uh, air, I think, in September, and certainly you can share with your uh, listeners uh, some of the details. I will, certainly. I will add the details in the episode notes and in my Instagram, which is Sobremesa53. I will share um, the details, but for those of um, the listeners that are local in the state of Minnesota, I think it will be aired in TPT live September 10th and Channel 2 September 19th, and I will for sure um, share more details later on. It is a very important documentary, and I'm really excited that you were part of it. I got to see it already, and I not only is very well made, but the stories are really well told, and I love, I think, something that you shared, how it honors the roles of, of the nurses and the first responders in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Anything else that um, you want to ask that I haven't asked you? There are so many things. We could continue for hours, but we, we really need to limit our conversation. But I would just like to offer you um, some final words before we wrap up today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to, <laughs> share, to have a conversation, a sobremesa with you. And I think that uh, these topics that we just scratched the surface are very important topics that are going to require our acknowledging and uh, making, uh, making them not only a priority, but a reality in our lives in the way to way, the, the, in the day to day, the way we look at, at the world, we, the way we hopefully become more uh, curious and more interested in understanding the people around us. And I think that is really the beginning of that lifelong journey yeah. of, uh, of wanting to know, of discovering, on under, trying to understand others' pers perspectives. Uh, in life and in health and in everything else, which I think is something that is desperately needed uh, mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. and in any country uh, these days of polarity mm -hmm. and uh, barriers and uh, disparities. So I hope we'll have a chance to talk more in uh, another, another time. And thank you mm -hmm. for having me and take care. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope this episode has enticed your appetite for more sobremesas. Trust me, there will be more to come. And don't forget to follow me on my Instagram account for episode notes, recipes, links, and much more. You can find more information in the episode notes. Te espero aquí. Siempre hay un lugar para ti en esta mesa. Hasta pronto.